everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin of the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. I'm here with Andrew Vance of the Choose the Hard Way podcast. We are going through Visma's dominance last weekend. Can anyone stop this? How do they stop this? The one cycling debacle, the upcoming races this weekend. Probably everyone talks about Omloop being the start of the season. I kind of think this is maybe the start of the real season. Yeah, it starts to get pretty serious in a few hours at Strada Bianchi. So we will get into that and much. Andrew, do you want to talk about your podcast real quick before we get going? Yeah, for sure. Choose the Hard Way is the podcast about how hard things build stronger humans. My guest this week is Heather Jackson talking about her transition from dominating triathlon to pro gravel racing and ultra trail running. So be sure to come check it out. And Spencer, if you don't mind, I'd love to invite people to come check out my new company that helps people build guided science bag practices to sleep better. It's called The Better Lab, and you can find us at thebetterlab.io. Check it out. I was worried you're going to say, I want to invite people to watch Strada Bianchi with us tomorrow. <laughs> please, please don't. <laughs> don't come over. <laughs> okay, if you would, anybody who wants to drop in out here in Hope, Maine, I've got some seats outside the living room. I think it'll be about eight degrees. I'll bring popcorn out. <laughs> Man, that's seriously cold. But I, I'm hesitant to talk about this race too much because it will probably be in process, if not finished, by the time this is published. I will say Tade, Tade Pogacar is starting the race. I kind of have a hard time believing anyone's going to beat him. What's your take on Strada? Like, I, they have extended it this year, so it's like around 216 yeah. kilometers. That's getting up to a more respectable distance. I kind of didn't like the, oh, it's the sixth monument. It's like, hey, guys, this is like two hours too short to be a monument. What are we doing here? But it's getting up there. It's growing. It's growing up. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the things I was doing before we met today, I was taking a look at some of the highlights from the UAE tour, which does have some spectacular scenery, but to me, it has a bit of that, you know, tour of Utah, Colorado. I don't know. What was the Colorado one called that was around for like five minutes? I know, yeah. I know exactly what you mean. So USA pro cycling challenge, not to be confused with the Colorado classic, which I think was a completely different right. race that picked right. up where USA pro challenge left off. Not quite as good of racing though. I was going back through Colorado classic results though. Yeah. Some some gems in there. Like Mateo, like an eighteen year old Mateo Jorgensen getting fifteenth on a stage. It's like little did we know how good this guy would be. Yeah, not bad. I think one of the things that stood out about those races though was they would like race on I seventy. And that's <laughs> I get a bit of that vibe when I watch the UAE tour. And as we were discussing earlier, there's something incredibly impressive about the road construction and that you see in the UAE tour. It's like Wow, building those roads in those locations. I've gone deep and done some research. It's pretty cool. However, I feel like scenery makes a huge difference in a race. And like Strati Bianchi, kind of unparalleled. It's a it's a beautiful, just like really beautiful scenery. You've got the gravel, the white roads. And it also at this point, like how long does this have to be around before it becomes an actual classic? Well, I, yeah, that's good. It's only 18. This is the 18th edition. So it's, it's very young, you know, I guess the short answer would be like a hundred more years. Then we can, then we can have a conversation. I would say, I would probably say it's a classic. That might be a hot take, but I think it's earned classic status. I mean, the winners every year are really, the really high quality winner. People prioritize the race. It's really popular. I mean, it's not monument status, but I, I would say it's up there with, with, uh, you know, the other races a level below that, like uh, it might be like sacrilege, but like San Sebastian, like I would put Strata up there almost equal to that. 
Yeah, I think in its 18th year, now that it's old enough to vote, qualifies for mandatory military service. I think that we could say that it's an adult now. It's it's really starting to blossom and mature, especially with the addition of this extra length in, in the race this year. And yeah, I think that we've got a classic on our hands. It's funny that it's essentially a Belgian waffle ride. You know, it's a mix of right. gravel road. It would never be called a gravel race, but it is kind of, it would, if it was in the U.S., it would be considered a gravel race, but it's also predates yeah. the gravel surge in popularity. I mean, they clearly knew what they were doing. They made this. It's a great location. As you say, it's beautiful, good route. It's, it's just kind of shocking to me how much it's taken off. Another race like this is Classic Cayenne, which is in Spain. I don't know if you watched that this year. It's also like a mix of gravel yeah. and pavement. That seems to be the, if you want to make noise as a new pro road race, that's, that's the way you go. All right. I'm noticing we've got Ben Healy on the start line. Is Ben going to do something big in this race? Ben could do something big. I mean, I have a prediction podcast behind a paywall and we're not doing this race partly because it's so hard to predict. I mean, it just feels like anything could happen. Ben Healy was good at Algarve and at Tuada de Bessage. I mean, but if Pogacar is fit, like who's, who's stopping him? It, it just seems a little, a little tough to imagine. I mean, you have Tom Pickcock too, the guy who won last year, but Maybe this is where we we tie this all together. Last weekend, this upcoming weekend, I, I'm just having a hard time figuring out where is where is Pitcock. You know, he won this. He won Strata last year. He got second at Liège. He's not looked. He does not sparkled the same to me since then. You know, I don't think. I think his last yeah. win might have been Strata Bianchi, and we saw him. He was the weakest guy in that front group at Amloop. Tom Squeens was the superior Tom in that group. And Tom Pickcock yeah. was just kind of always hanging on, always looked like he was about to get dropped. I just don't totally know what's going on with him. I mean, maybe this is a slow build into the Ardennes and the Olympics, and he's going to win Liège and the Olympics, and we're going to look like fools and get fourth at the tour. But I just am not totally confident he's going to repeat, even though his bike handling gives him a massive advantage. Yeah, I feel like we could see something from noted schemo racer Quinn Simmons in this race as well. It's a good, it's a good race for Quinn. If you remember, I think it was almost like three years ago now, he was in the lead group and kind of rode off the road. Right. I don't think, I, I yeah. don't think I'm making that up. The only problem is you get to that final climb. That's Do you yeah, remember when a, Wout had cramps so bad he fell over on that climb? Yeah. <laughs> you have to be <laughs> such a good climber to, to, to win on this, to win that final <laughs> surge. Yeah, I know we're kind of jumping ahead in the agenda for this podcast. I, I have to share with you, Spencer, I felt deeply disturbed when I saw Julian Alaphilippe without a goatee. I'm still <laughs> reeling. It was it was like seeing Mr. Keaton on Family Ties clean shape. I didn't really recognize know. him. I mean, obviously, he has a distinctive position on the bike, and you know who he is. Yeah. But I was surprised by that, too. I don't know what's going on there. Yeah, I feel like Sagan, when he was having some of his challenges off of the bike, like went in the direction of becoming a wizard, Julian Alaphilippe, Clean as a whistle. Clean cut now. I mean, part of the most, like the thing that was most surprising to me last week was watching, you know, when Visma was kind of seems like their strategy is, hey, 100K out. We're going to blow the race up. We're going to have a few people yeah. with us. And you know what we're going to do 5K after that? We're going to blow it up again. And we're going to have even more people relative to whoever's left. I was just shocked to see that, like the quality of rider that was just getting blown off the back with 95 kilometers to go. 
And to see Alaphilippe just struggling to hold wheels, you know, this was even before the crash, before the, the, what is now a boilerplate crash that he has to have every race that he does. Just, man, that it's just seems like, and I don't even know if it's, if it's his fault, like boilerplate crash, (laughs) it's now contractually obliged, but you know, you feel it coming, you know, he missed that move. An envelope, and you're like, I just know, like, we know this is coming. And then he ran into a bollard in the road. Be- oh, I just doesn't seem like he's as, as checked in as he maybe was two or three years ago. Yeah. I mean, if they were calling Jasper, Jasper disaster, maybe Al Philippe's new nickname is Mario Kart. <laughs> <laughs> but I would not. Uh, is he at this race, by the way? Is he at? Yeah, he's on the start list. I don't, I mean, I'm wondering if he's going to scratch due to the recent crash. Watch, he's winning this solo as people are listening. Yeah, I mean, he could, he could. He's had some good rides and he's had some big wrecks at Strata. I just, I was, I was surprised at how kind of off the watts per kilo metric he needed to be to even stay in the front group. Yeah. That, That was pretty shocking to see. What is Garrett Thomas doing at this race? Has he done this before? Well, this is like, so let's get into <laughs> number two. Like Ineos last week at the, at Omloop and Kern, you would think, well, they have Tom Pitcock and he could do well, right? Well, he did. Okay. He was in the winning move at Omloop. That's very good. And he finished eighth in the sprint or eighth overall, I guess, six in the sprint, which is really, that's pretty impressive. But behind Pitcock, they just had no one that could do anything, you know? And I was surprised we watched uh, behind the scenes in like opening weekend. And it's just a lot of these guys, they kind of remind me of actors that you would hire to play British writers from team sky, you know, in their heyday, like Luke Rowe, Cam Worf, like they look impressive. Like you see them in the sweats, they look fantastic, but they're just not, like Connor Swift, Ben Turner, Luke Rowe, like are these, they're, they're not going to get results in these races by themselves. Th- those are support level riders. And then you have someone like Lawrence Rex on Intermarche who would be better, who would immediately be their second option in the classics. I'm j- I was just surprised at kind of how top heavy they had become in almost, and I, I don't want to be rude, but almost, they almost feel like almost like a British local, like a development team or something where it's like, well, they have these British riders who aren't going to get results personally, but you know, we're getting them to Europe and we're getting them reps. Like it just doesn't feel like that's the level they should be. Like, do you ever see them? And you're like, I don't know who that is. Ben Turner. I remember him kind of being new kid on the block two years ago and he's not improved, but I would never see someone on Visma, and I don't immediately know who they are, and I don't, and I immediately know what they're capable of. I just Ineos almost feels to have this like anonymous. We've we've filled up our roster with really talented Anglo riders who don't produce that much, and I don't totally know how it's gotten here. So it's almost like you're just going to see them pull up with the branded pop up tent at El Dorado Park in Long Beach for like the Tuesday night crew. <laughs> yeah, they look fantastic. And I want those sweats they're wearing. I cannot express that enough, but just are, do they, do they have the engines anymore? It, I, I was really surprised by it. And then Garen Thomas, I'm trying to see if he's done this race before. I don't, and you know what I, maybe what this is about, the more I think about it is trying, I think a lot of these riders are testing equipment they're going to use on the gravel stage at the Tour de France. 
Yeah, and they're okay, probably trying to get him reps on whatever equipment setup they have cooked up for that stage, and that's why he's here. Yeah, jumping back to that Enios behind the scenes video from the first first weekend out there in Belgium, something that really jumped out and made me question what's going on in the team and their level of professionalism is that they had a clip where all of the writers on the team, including Pick Pidcock. We're at a VIP event for sponsors. I think it was the night before Omloop. And was it Omloop or KBK? It was Omloop. The, which... the way that, who knows, maybe that was filmed, you know, five days before, but they made it. No, I don't. They made I it seem I don't think as though so. it was the day yeah. before, the night before Omloop. The day, night before, and these guys are all standing up. They're standing up doing a Q&A. They're not sitting down. And Anyone who listens to Garrett Thomas's podcast knows that I don't think that that man has been on his feet. <laughs> I, <laughs> like probably more than a cumulative of of fifteen minutes in in all of twenty twenty three. I think that the behind the scenes stuff he had to film for Unchained actually took up his entire allotment of time spent on feet in twenty twenty three. Was that like special effects? They just rotated the camera. So that it looked as though he yeah. was standing, but yeah. he was just laying down for all the scenes. And I think his podcast, <laughs> it's kind of a joke, but it's probably serious. It's got to be the best podcast, the most popular podcast in the world done by a horizontal host. He's a trendsetter and disruptor. There's no doubt about it. And that might be what we see from Garrett this weekend. And it sounds, you know, it sounds kind of ridiculous and jokey. It's like, oh, he's, they're standing up the night before a race. You know, it's like, Belgians like don't let you sleep in a room with plants because the plants are going to take all the oxygen from you. But of course, there definitely is something to it. It's not restful on your legs to be standing up. And if we're operating under the assumption that every little bit matters at these races, then I, I was shocked to see that, that they kind of had them going out drumming up business for what I can only assume is some sort of Enios VIP mixer event where they get people to pay a bunch of money and then they get to hang out with the riders and listen to the riders talk the night before the race, but it did seem a little unprofessional. I was surprised. You know, Spencer, since the Tour de France in the summer of 2023, I'm going to be honest with you. I had completely forgotten that Kofidis as a team existed. I'd forgotten that they were a sporting entity. And and then I remember they did have a rider who won a stage at the tour. Was that, who was it? Was that Guillaume Martin or was it someone no, else? He's not on the team anymore. I can't believe I. Oh, okay. He changed, he changed teams. teams. Maybe that's why I forgot about Kofi. Does. His name. Yeah. But I just like, I saw him pop up in a race and I was like, oh, there's still a team. <laughs> they, well, they come out, they, they come out once a year. They're like the groundhog, Punks, Punxsutawney Phil, whatever his name is. The man who won that was Victor Lafay. Who okay. I think this is him. Yes. Is this him? Yes. Fantastic stage win. Kind of an interesting story with him. Offered, I believe, 1.5 million euros a year to stay with Kofidis, turned it down to go to the Cathalon AG2R. So he might have the same, he might rate Kofidis about the same level you do in, in his own internal rankings there. I mean, I was surprised yeah. to hear he turned okay. that down. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Poking around a bit more in the start list, I think your hypothesis about testing equipment for the tour is spot on because I'm seeing a lot of names in here that I otherwise would not expect on this start list. All right. So as you mentioned, Spencer, you have a, a race prediction show as well. I, I am curious what you think because if we look at what we've seen so far this season, 
there are we did declare the the death of cycling 2.0 sometime in late 2023 i'm seeing some some signs that it might be coming back and it was making me think about some of the patterns that are characteristic of cycling 2.0 specifically as hard as possible from the gun and these attacks and breakaways going from 100k plus out going to the line that being a very common outcome now i think that's you know if we could predict anything about strata i think it's that that there's likely to be something that happens in an early uh, gravel sector we'll see a, a winning breakaway go from there and someone from that small breakaway will likely win the race the other trend is the breakaway that dangles that gets caught in the finishing straight and just like that bizarre they're like five seconds out are they going to get caught or not i saw that in a few women's races over the weekend what do you make of that what are we going to see more of this year i mean i definitely think we're going to see and you know and when we say cycling 2.0 is dead i think that was basically just you saying because people aren't going to race 12 months a year anymore full out yeah, I definitely agree with. Completely. I definitely agree with that, and I think that's could yeah. be why Tom Pitcock is maybe looking a little less sparkly this time of year. That you know he's picking his spots instead of like I'll I'll win every month. I don't. Well, it still remains to be seen how that's working for Matthew Vanderpool. I think we're going to see. I think races are going to break up earlier and earlier. Maybe not. Strata Strata is so unique that I guess it already breaks up so early. But at least these controlled right. classics in Belgium. I mean, Visma was maybe concerned like oh. You know, someone will have a plan to beat us because they saw us dominate this race last year. and We're the strongest team coming in. So you know what we'll do? We'll drop them all before they can even do anything. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, how about that? I think kind of that's maybe the next frontier we're in. Instead of sitting around and letting someone pick at you, you know, like peck, 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 and like maybe they find a weak spot. It's like, just get rid of all those jokers before the race even gets hard. And then you've eliminated variables. And then it's almost, at Omloop, they were almost like, how do we want to win this? Oh, well, we have, you know, Tom Squeen's in here. He's going to have to win by getting away on a climb. Let's make sure that doesn't happen. Let's just pop Mateo off the front, see what happens there. Oh, we all got caught. We've had Jan Tratnik in the Peloton doing nothing all day. Okay, Jan, it's your turn. And they almost become unbeatable when this happens because they've, strip the race down so early and i think that's probably what we're gonna see more and more of another thing i'm slightly concerned about if you go back to last weekend pretty much every person who finished first or second in a major race was on one or two teams and that was uae and team visma lisa bike that's that's concerning if you're not one of those teams and i think maybe even the delta between those two top i think those are the two top tier teams in the sport I think that's maybe even become bigger in the off season because they just continue to like hoover up the top talent. I mean, they have Matteo Jorgensen, Visma does, that they can just play as like a fun wild card. Or it's like, hey, Matteo, break up the front of this race for us. And he would be a leader on almost every other team in the sport. Right. So the depth there is a little scary. The funny thing is, every major race was won by Visma or UAE, except the UAE Tour, which <laughs> UAE absolutely choked. I mean, that was unbelievable. And then... I don't know if you looked at Leonard Van Edfelt, the guy who stormed clear on the yeah. final stage to win. Yeah. I mean, some pretty impressive totally. power numbers. Like that was that was a really impressive ride. But I st- I'm still fu- it's still fuzzing to me why UAE was riding so hard with their leaders to break that race up in the crosswinds, leading into the climb. Maybe a little silly there. 
Yeah, you did give UAE a lot of stick in the newsletter this week. However, when we take a look at the Fondrome Classic, UAE one two. Mark Hershey is back, baby. He is. He is back. Only in like I don't know. I wish I knew my candy better. I can make a pun here. <laughs> he used to be a Snickers bar. Now he's a something you give out. The cheap house gives out at Halloween. But he he actually is doing really well in smaller sub-tier races like if you look at the end of his year last year it's one two three four five like six italian classics you know smaller italian classics he's he's in the top five of every one of them you know it's really impressive and then wins this he's had a strange career i'll put a pin in him for one second i want to circle back to him but yeah, the, yeah. these two there was the the phone ardesh and the phone drone really good ce- okay. good scenery check the scenery boxes really hard races like shockingly hard uae wins both of them Wanayuso wins the first one and then Wanayuso kind of easily gets second on the second day when mark hershey wins that's like that's something i want to see from Wanayuso because he is 21 he had a great season two years ago when he was 19 got third at the vuelta i thought last year was like not bad but you when you start stop to see improvement that's a little bit of a danger zone for a rider like that. In my example, there is yeah. Mark Hershey. Like, do you remember how good he was in the 2020 tour? And then flash forward four years, and he it feels like he's fighting to get back to that level. He looked fantastic and he, he might be great in this upcoming Arden's classic season. But, you know, that's kind of to me that I guess he's doing tour Flanders. Holy smokes. That'll be interesting. But that's not the danger because Mark Hershey, I'm sure, makes a lot of money and has a great career but you know when you when you stop moving forward it's like you blink he's 25 years old you know he's approaching the middle of his career and he's trying to get back to where he was when he was 21 22 so it is big for mark hershey to do that i do want to see him do that in some bigger races but yeah uae just dominated those two days it showed you like what and there was no visma at those races like what how good uae is and then it's shocking to see how much they're getting beaten up beaten up on by visma at other races when Visma's present. Yeah, and there have been a lot of question marks in Hershey's career for various reasons. And he did, of course, have hip surgery in 2022, which you have to think. And for the year prior to that, apparently, he said he he was suffering pretty severely from whatever the consequences were of that hip injury. Not entirely clear to me what the hip injury was. Perhaps he had the ball socket resurface. It's probably the most likely one. Is that normal for someone of that age? Seem uh well, I mean, people genetically can have have issues with the structure of their hips, so that can happen sometimes. Otherwise, I'm not so sure. Interesting. Yeah, I guess that's right. Could just be yeah. a genetic issue and then it's pushed out more and more by how much he's riding in an extreme position. So you have to get it taken care of. But yeah, Hershey is kind of a good one to watch out for at a lot of these races. Having said that, is he on the start list at Strata? Where's my start list? Mark Hershey, where are you? Where are you? Well, no, he is. Oh, yeah, he is. Yeah, Mark Hershey is there. He's all right. This is going to be doing. This is a strong team. When I really, you really think about this, Tade Pogacar, they're looking pretty good. Mark Hershey, Tim Wellens. I mean, this could be the day we see Visma have some problems, and that's kind of my next question for you. So, like, Visma is so good opening weekend, and you start to your mind goes to dark places. You're like, are they going to win every classic? Are they going to win every classic and every Grand Tour? Like, Hmm. is this even going to be fun? But if you remember, like all of this is dependent, their their entire strategy is dependent on just being physically stronger. Because if you break the race up, you isolate 
your riders against the other riders, it's fine as long as you're so strong that isolation is good. What happened at the bigger races last year, Wout is isolated against Tade and, and Matthew Manderpool in getting dropped. Or it's Roubaix and it, there's two Alpecin riders, one Bisma rider in the finale. Like that's not ideal. And that's what happens when the other teams just have a few collection, like collection of really, really good superstars that are just stronger than your designated leader. That doesn't happen at the tour so much because Jonas Vinigo, I don't know if you watched the O Grand Camino classic, but my God, that guy is really good and only getting better and a complete psychopath because he's attacking up and over the tops of climbs on rainy days when he doesn't need to take client, doesn't need to take time and doing it just for fun and to see how much time he can put into people. So anyone that wants to beat him at the tour should probably be a little a little on notice right now. But I, I kind of wonder if Visma is going to have the same problem they had last year where they come into these big races. And, you know, if you remember, I'm, I'm now remembering the end of Strada last year. Remember this? They had Tej Banu and Attila Valter in the final group. They couldn't take advantage of it because neither of those guys right. could win a bunch sprint. And it, the, kind of the whole house of cards comes crashing down. Yeah, and also it's the beginning of the year. There's always the question of, okay, are they at another level? Are they going to carry this forward throughout the rest of the season? Or are they, you know, are their competitors just in the process of peaking for something bigger later? And I think especially, I mean, good God, that that Vinigo ride was bananas. It was bananas, and I mean, he dominated that race last year. But the didn't have as good of a field, and the course was a little better for him. It was more uphill finishes. But he was attacking up and over climbs, taking time on the descents, and then holding off pelotons on the flats by himself. Man, this guy is fit. I know, I know Mitch Docker, I heard him talking on the cy- cycling podcast this week of like, well, if he's already in tour form, where does he go from here? I you know, I did look right. at some power like estimations and it had him at about seven watts per kilo for 11 minutes. And that, that is very good. But, you know, at the tour, probably have to be about double the, the length of that. You know, he'll probably need to be about seven watts per kilo for, for 20 minutes. So he still does have room to grow there. But that, I mean, the guy seems impervious to, like, remember when Garrett Thomas won the tour and then he came back the next year and looked like a different person and you're like wow that guy has yeah. had some fun it just see he seems to be impervious to that like he never it's the the fame doesn't ever seem to weigh on him yeah and if you've watched the matt stevens cafe ride with pog you know that he he has the mindset to do every part of what he's doing and he's extremely hungry yeah. <laughs> like the guy loves to win he seems to have a good time he seems to be a really fantastic leader. He seems to inspire the riders around him who are the best in the world to ride at an even higher level and to rise to the level of what he needs at the right time. And yeah, he's just an, he's an, he's like a Michael Jordan level talent and personality. Yeah. And I'm dating, I'm dating myself. <laughs> who is that? <laughs> <laughs> And then on to the, the real races of the weekend. Paranese, which starts Sunday. This gets a little confusing. Paranese starts Sunday. Terreno Adriatico starts Monday. I don't believe these races used to overlap. Maybe they always have. But two stage races. One, one is happening in Italy. One in France. And they've, we, they've, we've duly split up the top GC stars. So you have Jonas Vindigo at Terreno. 
And then you have Primoz Roglic and Remco Evenepoel at Paris-Nice, which I'm personally very excited about. But I know someone reached out to me like, who's going to win, Primoz or Remco or Joao? And it's like, if you're even having the conversation, like the you're wrong because Primoz, I went back to the records on this. He's won 10 out of the last 12 I guess, sub-grand tour stage races he's done. So you'd call them week-longs, but some are four days and some are eight days. And the two that he lost, because he crashed. Like, if you remember, I think that was two years ago, three years ago at Paris-Nice, he was right. winning and then he crashed like pretty close to the finish line, didn't win. I think there was a Basque country that he crashed maybe the final day on. So basically, this guy is unbeatable for all intents and purposes in these one-week stage races. And there's no individual time trial which is not going to help Remco Evenepoel at all. It's a team time trial, which is going to help Primoz Roglic on a super strong Bora team. So I think Roglic has Perry Nice, but I, I'm, I'm excited to watch this, this showdown. Hopefully, this is the beginning of Remco doing big stage races against really big riders, and we get to see this habitually now. Well, and according to the internet and marketing, Roglic is now on the fastest road bike ever. So it'll be quite <laughs> interesting to see if he goes to another level in this event, I, I do have to say if, since he will not be at Torino, I think that this has to be a difficult thing for a professional to make the challenging decision, Spencer, to forego a shot at the Trident, the Trident trophy, of course, among the most esteemed and distinctive in sport. Yeah. I mean, there must be fights, physical fist fights. And the team about who gets to go to Torino because everyone wants that trident. It's definitely the best trophy in sports. I mean, I'm, I'm having deja vu. We might have talked about this exactly one year ago <laughs> during this race. It's, 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 it's actually worth talking about every year. And I think if you win it more than once, you should get a matching net, like a golden net to go with the trident. And by the so end, you could both. They just keep giving you accessories to look like a sea god, a sea god or a gladiator. Yeah. Both are appropriate. Yeah, I actually don't totally understand the appeal of Perry Nice. Like Torino is, there's almost never crosswinds. It's better weather. It's a much more chill race. It's just a clean seven stage race, seven seven stage stage race. Perry Nice is hard. I mean, it's they they feel like they're up in the Paris suburbs for basically three four days, and then you just take a TJV right down to Nice and you have a couple of mountain stages and a really hard final day in Nice and it's crosswinds. It's like brutal weather when you're up in the North. I mean, maybe, maybe people like it because it gets, it's like a kickstart to the system and like gets you real intense racing to start the season. But man, I think Jonas is making the right decision by going to Torino. I, I don't fault him at all for doing that over Perry Nice. Uh, it's, it's not a bad spot for him. And so Wait, so who do you think is going to Do you think anyone's beating Jonas at Torino? I don't, I don't even think this is worth having a conversation about. I think it's that going to be that much of a blowout. Yeah. I'm just going. I'm scrolling. Yeah, cancel the right. race. Yeah. Just give him the win. Yeah. Yeah. Get his, get his trident ready now. He, I mean, he is going um, up against, I guess, we should say, like Juan Ayuso, who, who I said was really good last weekend. So will be super right. interesting to watch him race against Ayuso, Simon Yates. I thought it was Adam Yates. I was surprised he was racing so quickly after his concussion, mm-hmm. but Simon Yates, Ben O'Connor, Jai Henley, Uta Brooks, but man, in, in reality, there's, there's no one even close to that guy right now. I mean, he, he's, he's such a good stage racer. It's unbelievable. Yeah, we're going to have Cav out there as well. 
Cav, yeah. I mean, I guess he was got sick at UAE tour. And you you were talking about the the roads. I do think the roads, while physically impressive, maybe are make the UAE tour a little tough to watch and a little odd. It's almost like laboratories. I talked about this on the move where you have like the sprints are all just like, these are sprints and this is nothing else to be confused with nothing else, <laughs> but they become like less useful because it, the power is so high and the speed is so high. It's really impressive, but it's not really how sprinting yeah. is in a grand tour. So I'm curious yeah. to see how Cav does back in a slightly more sophisticated sprinting environment. Yeah. I, I want to jump back for a second too. I know we're already, we're already looking ahead, but <clears throat> Did you notice that Wout was running white shoe covers last weekend, which I don't think he's ever run before? I didn't notice this. I, yeah. Well, so let's have this conversation. So everyone wears white shoes now, right? Like you look at the front of a Peloton, it's all white. I don't, I think I had two kids in the past few years and I think I just missed this trend. I'm getting old because I'm just like, all right, you don't wear white shoes because they get dirty, right? What, what would be the point of that? No, now everyone wears white. It looks cool when you're a professional cyclist. I don't totally understand it for recreational cyclists because aren't you just cleaning your shoes every day? That sounds miserable. But I guess it makes sense that you would then, if you're running white shoes, you've got to have white shoe covers because what's the point of having the white shoes if you're just covering them up? I felt like this was a shot across Matthew Vanderpool's bow because Vanderpool like, was early adopter of he white shoe the covers. First. People. Yeah, people used to ask, how does he keep them so clean? Like that question's come up more than once. Wow, I mean, we'd have to go back and take a look at the tape, which we will do. I believe that historically he's always run black shoe covers. So to see him turning the corner on this suggests to me that something big's about to go down. <laughs> what do you think about Wow? I mean, the dominant performance opening weekend. Apparently in Belgium, he was getting crap after Omloop. <laughs> it was a really impressive ride. He basically broke the race up, paced all day for his teammates. They get caught. His teammate wins. He wins the sprint for third after having been off the front for 120 kilometers. And he's like getting, they're giving him crap for like, the guy can't win. He's not a winner. And then he comes out the next day, just attacks with 92K to go, goes to the line with three or two other people, easily wins. Pretty good results. And now he's going to altitude camp for 22 days instead of doing normally you would do maybe Estrada, maybe milan san remo maybe a Torino or perry nice but we're just seeing these guys i think same thing with vanderpool it's just there's no stage racing you're just dropping into your big classic objectives and then going back to altitude camp in between what do you think about that do you like this trend do you think it's not good well i think a lot of things about what Wout has done even so far this year, remarkable. Number one, let's remember that Wout, Jonas, the whole Visma Lisa bike crew, none of them ever canted their brifters and they were just totally dominant at during peak canted brifter era. Like they're still just like totally straight ahead, classic brifter position, which is quite interesting to me. I mean, the other thing that I noticed was it was like watching uh, somebody play Tony Hawk Pro Skater or something the way Wout just destroyed that race on Sunday. It was, you know, again, like a very uh, a very Wout-like performance. I thought what was more remarkable about KBK 
was this movie star writer who took third place. Like, is this somebody we need to watch in the future, Spencer? This is, I'm not going to get the first name right. Oyer Lazcano. Yeah, that's kind of it, actually. It's, yeah, Oyer Lazcano. I don't really know how to say it either. It's a Basque name. The guy's really good. I only know about him because of, I feel like I keep plugging this, my prediction podcast outcomes. Check it out if you want to. But he, I caught, my first glimpse of him, like last early August, I think it was Velta Burgos. He won an uphill stage, and but the guy, he's a big guy, he's like big, strong guy. It's like he didn't even know it was uphill. He's like, I'll just ride everyone off my wheel. Whoa, I'm winning. And then he had a good Vuelta, like a lot of good stage hunting stages there. And then at the Classic, he won earlier this year. I'm going to make sure he did the Vuelta so I don't look stupid. Yeah, he did the Vuelta. It was good. He did that classic in that i talked about where it's a like a mixed surface race and he held off a chasing group from visma which included jan tratnik so right there i was like oh this guy's on he's gonna have a great season and i mean he was one of the strong he was up there with wow the problem is him and tim wellens were both really strong probably equally strong to wout but just didn't have any sprint so what are they gonna do but no, this guy's really good. 24 years old on Movistar, a rare classics rider on Movistar. Yeah. Spanish yeah, national champion uh, too. Okay. Yeah. I'm just, you know, as you pointed out, like you got to wonder where is this guy headed? He's the, going to Visma. I hate to break it to you. <laughs> He'll yeah, be on Visma I mean, next year. Yeah. I know this has been covered a lot. What did you think about Mateo Jorgensen? And do you think at some point he's going to get that? You know, the domestic leash that Visma Lisa Bike seems to afford people occasionally to like potentially win something this year. Well, they were going to see him supposed win. to win on Saturday at Omloop. That was clearly yeah. the plan. I mean, that was a race where I felt like five winning moves were launched and then none of them. Yeah, won. totally. So, yeah, I mean, clearly he was like a, he was their, their non wow, their non sprint option. Like he attacked, he was away. In theory, should have won, but you do see there are limits. Sometimes if you go 120K before the finish into a, a move, you might be fatigued when you get to the end and the Peloton will catch you. I, yeah, I don't, I mean, Mateo's so good right now. I mean, he was key on both of those days that I have to imagine there'll be more opportunities for him, even in this classic season. Like, let's think about, let's look at Wout's schedule. I think he's doing E3, Get Wobblegum, Tour Flanders, Peru Bay that would not seem to leave a ton of room for Mateo, but I mean, think about yeah. Gent Wolfgang last year where Christophe Laporte wins basically because Wout is his teammate and is so good. I think he could have a similar situation at one of those races for Mateo. Not because, not maybe not Flanders because that's turned into a strongman competition and it, there's actually less room for tactics there than there used to be. But at one of those other races, you could see Mateo having a big day. Yeah, so I'm I'm thinking back to the hubbub last year when it was reported. Well, I guess Matteo Jorgensen shared this himself that he had paid for a lot a lot of outside training resources and training camps to go to another level last year. The internet and the platform formerly known as Twitter, where Spencer, if you will recall, people were absolutely outraged uh, that he had paid out of pocket to take his career to another level. Clearly it's paid off, number one. Number two, it's making me think about the NFL player team report cards that came out this week and some of the things that I read about 
NFL teams. <laughs> they are <laughs> the NFL is not a plush environment. Like if these riders think they have it tough, it's like the the locker rooms are a lot of teams are not nice. It's why there's usually there's an inverse relationship between if your team is really good. Like the Chiefs is one of the worst, I guess like amenity team in the league because probably because they're so good and people want to play for them anyway. But it's like kind of dingy locker rooms. Like I, a lot of the teams didn't have hot water in their showers. Like that that is not fun. And these team buses are probably much more plush than a lot of NFL facilities. Yeah. So reading that kind of made me, made me think a little bit about Mateo and like, Hey, this is, this is paid off for him. And to your point, some of these NFL teams, like the chief, it wasn't the chiefs. There's another team in the report. I'm not going to guess, but there was a team and there were reports about them having like a rat infestation in their locker room. Half of, half of the showers did not work. Lots of information in the report about non-functioning toilets in the facilities, which you can imagine is would be very necessary for NFL players. <laughs> it's it is it's terrible. I actually it's kind of shocking to read, but I guess when you're in a closed league and there's no competition allowed, there's not a lot of incentive to make things nice. It, it yeah, and your brain is being turned into mush on top of that. So uh, enjoy your lack of toilet while that happens. One uh, one thing about the Mateo, I guess, reveal, I guess he, I, he must have done it because he thought, I want to preempt getting crap for just going to, a, I guess, the sports super team. There's a missing component there, though. If you're paying me, let's say, 3 million euros a year and I have to pay out of pocket for my own training versus a team that's going to pay me 500,000 euros a year and everything's included, I'm going to pick the 3 million. You know, like there, There's a component there of the cash payment to you. It might just cover it might sound like whoa you have to pay for your own stuff but you're making a ton of money you know i guess with visma though the reason if i was him i would join visma is probably the quality of their coaching inside the team is just significantly higher than movistar and that's why i would have chosen to move even if the pay was the same and clearly they're doing something there that's working that's going right i mean he's looked good this year frankly he doesn't look significantly better than he was last year. He was already so good at Movistar that it's hard to move up from where he was, but you may be just having everything taken care of and you don't have to book your own altitude camps and it's all taken care of. Maybe that is just a mental burden that's off you and, and helps your performance. But I, I don't know. I feel like he kind of threw Movistar under the bus there a little bit. Just like, did you, you could have just said, I thought, you know, it's, it's clearly this, the leader in sports science and the sport. And I thought it was like the next place the next place where i could advance my career something like that yeah something like that probably would have worked kind of uh related to the nfl there also was news this week that rugby is going to institute mouth mouth guards that can detect head injuries in an effort to help prevent tbi and it made me think about how in professional cycling given that riders have helmets on their heads that very easily could contain an accelerometer, which is part of what that mouth guard has that allows them to detect whether a certain threshold has been surpassed in a collision that could cause a head injury in future TBI. Just it seems like it would make a lot of sense to have something like that in professional cycling in addition to the proto- the concussion protocols that are allegedly running after a rider hits the ground, which is just like a quick qualitative exam 
Yeah, maybe one. I thought the same thing too. Obviously, they can't wear mouth guards because you can't breathe. But got to be something you could put in the helmet. I guess who pays for that? Is that on the team? Is that on the UCI? You know, when it it's like when the check comes, the, everyone has T Rex arms in pro cycling. Like no one's re- reaching out to pick that check up. That's probably the main. And then I was thinking, you know, maybe this is me finding a problem where there wouldn't be. But let's say Dave, David Gadu is fourth at the tour. Tade, Remco, Jonas tangled up in a crash. ASO says you're out of there. Oh, you've you've passed the threshold of uh, you're you're all kicked out of the race. Oh, now David Gadu is winning the race. Like, would there be? I I just kind of worry about like, oh, he went down and yeah. or he dropped his helmet in the neutral zone. It's like, was it on his head? Was it not on his head? We don't know. We don't know. Would there be room for maybe shenanigans there or people thinking that there's shenanigans? I mean, get a rider getting kicked out of a Tour de France while leading for surpassing an acceler- like acceptable acceleration of their head would probably be pretty controversial. Yeah, I think it would be, uh, it would be controversial. You know, um, I know we're jumping around here. What did you think about Lawrence Pithy's ride over the weekend? He's really good. I mean, he made that initial group at Kern Muscles Kern. And Pithy, Pithy won. I want to get this right. He was good at Tour Down Under. And then he won the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race, which I'd imagine any si- anyone outside of New Zealand and yeah. Australia is not watching that race. I did watch a replay of it, though, of like the last 10K and was impressed with his, you know, kind of like his I guess this combination of sprinting and climbing, like he finished eighth at La Siam on Tuesday, which is a pretty sprint heavy classic race. So the fact that he can climb and sprint that well is impressive. Clearly, Wout and Visma knew about this. And I mean, one of the impressive things about Wout and I guess Lascano and Wellens too is just like, okay, Pithy's here. He can sprint. That's the only way I can lose. All right, let's go fast on this climb and get rid of him. <laughs> He's a really good rider and they just dropped him so easily and rode away. But Clearly, clearly, he he they were concerned about him because he does have a fast sprint. Twenty one years old, Kiwi on Groupama yeah. FDJ, really good. And you know, not to keep harping on Ineos, but you know, there is a lot of hate for these old school teams from I guess forward minded cycling personnel, people that believe in performance and things being organized. But clearly, something's working. Like with Lascano and Jorgensen on Movistar, Pithy on FDJ. These guys seem to develop actually pretty well in these environments. And then you go to, a, let's say, a hyper-scientific environment like Ineos, and it doesn't feel like anyone ever gets good. It just feels like if you go to their start list for, for Strata, you have Tom Pickcock. Tom Pickcock is so talented that so I, I almost feel like he's stagnated a bit since he's come to Ineos, but he still potentially could win Strata Bianchi on Sunday or Saturday. But then you have... You look at the riders that you think could do well that aren't Pickcock, and it's the riders that just joined the team, like AJ August, Magna Sheffield. Like it almost feels like the longer you're there, the less good you get. Like Ben Turner, if Ben Turner was on FDJ, would he be better than he is now? Having been on Ineos, it kind of makes you re-examine some of the biases you might have against some of these like less less scientific teams. Yeah, and I mean, and look at Ben O'Connor at the He's, UAE Tour. Yeah, yeah, the guy's incredible. Right? Developed really well over the past five or six years on a team that from the outside looking and you might think is a bit of a they might run on vibes more than data speaking of vibes have you heard any rumors about the new season of unchained 
No, I forgot it existed until you just said that. I assume it comes out. I assume they're doing what Drive to Survive does, and it will come out like the week before the Tour de France. So that you, the idea is you see it on Netflix, you watch it and say, this is pretty cool. And then the tour's on right when you finish it. And then you start watching that. Yeah. And have you heard about the new series they're doing Unpaved? It's about gravel racing. Is that true? No. No. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be a great name though. Unpaved. Unpaved. I like it. Unpaved. But is it about Strata? Is it about Belgium Awful Ride? What's the difference between those two events? No one knows. One more thing I want to discuss with you before we go. One one cycling that was, you know, this this, I guess, envisioned ultra modern. And if I'm if I'm bumbling and stumbling, it's because I don't even really understand what it was supposed to be. They were going to professionalize pro cycling by getting all the teams together and they would own the means of production and they would bundle TV rights and all these races together and it would be hyper professional and teams would be able to make money. It was going to be done with an injection of 250 euro, 270, sorry, 200, not 270 euro, but 250 million euro, $270 million. Unclear what they were going to do with that money. And they were soliciting investors. I guess the Saudi investment fund, PIF, was one of the options, but they've actually been a little low on cash lately if you've been checking the journal. So maybe not a slam dunk to come in and buy ProCycling like everyone thought. There were some other private equity, private equity investors like SRJ Sports. So you'd wonder, wow, what are they going to do with all that money? And then you'd assume, I think you brought this up immediately, why wouldn't the investors want their money back? Well, that was a sticking point. There was a meeting in London last month. They did had a presentation. And, and you know who's driving all this? EY. Do you know what EY is? I had to look this yeah, up. Consultancy. Well, yeah, it's Ernst & Young. They've just like changed their yeah. name to try to convince us they're not a, yeah. an accounting firm. Now they're EY, the right. consultancy firm. They're pushing in it because the moment the papers are signed, they get a big fat fee for closing this deal. But the teams were like, now hold on a second. You're going to give us 250 million euro and you need 100 million of it back 12 months later. So that means if there was 10 teams, each team would have to write a check for 10 million euros, assuming that the new revenues that they created didn't pay off in the course of 12 months, which of course they wouldn't. You're not going to be able to buy TV rights from every race and then sell those TV rights for a profit 12 months after doing the deal. And so these, a lot of these teams correctly deduced that this was a bad deal for them and left the project. So now there's less than the 10 teams required to, to even get it off the ground will probably die in the vine. I mean, one anonymous team manager's quote was crazy business model if there even is one. <laughs> it's like, I kind of think that sums it up. And then another one said, we're not interested from day one after the first meeting. Like, it just doesn't seem like this is going anywhere because no one thought, oh, wait, we'll have to pay back the money they're giving us to revolutionize the sport. You know, Spencer, I, I'm not currently what I would consider a, a cycling journalist. I'm someone commenting on this stuff. It's amazing to me though, that there is one article, this article was published yesterday. It's in cycling news. I didn't see anything else in English language cycling press. Maybe there is, maybe there's something newer. I think that this is one of the biggest stories in professional cycling in probably the last four years. And I'm just kind of surprised there's zero original reporting on this. This is a regurgitation or an yeah, this is like this whole story is reported from I'm not going to attempt to pronounce this the title of this publication. I think it's a Belgian publication. 
so this is just a story writing off a translation of something in a, a Belgian outlet. This seems like a big, important story. And no one says it in this translation of a different story. But I am wondering, given that they could only, they needed 10 teams to have the critical mass that they needed to actually do this thing. And I just have to think that they're, it's just fear of ASO, right? Well, I don't know if it's fear so if of you, ASO. Wait, fear of ASO that it's falling apart? No, no, no. I'm wondering if these teams are afraid of alienating ASO by joining this this consortium. Because if you look at the teams that were not involved as initial stakeholders, it's Kofidis, Decathlon, Groupama. So, I mean, none of the French teams were going to be involved in this for reasons that I think we all understand. And I feel like you would have to have one of them to then get the rest of, not that you have to have the French teams, but I feel like that's probably the deal breaker is they don't want to alienate the powers that be. That's kind of been the uh, conventional wisdom for years. I kind of wonder though, like what mechanism does ASO really have? And it's funny, you know, another outlet that did reporting on this, Lakeep, you know, who owns Lakeep? ASO. So when ASO is essentially writing a story, this is a dumb idea. No one likes it (laughs) about a a firm or a project that they've said they're not interested in, don't support. So it is a little funny that that gets picked up and aggregated without question. But when you look at the, so the, the originally it was, oh, the French teams can't piss off ASO because they can always be second division. They don't even have to stay in the world tour and they'll be invited to the tour, tour de France if ASO likes them. Pretty compelling argument. The only thing I wonder about that is there's actually not, that lever is going away because the top two second division teams automatically get invited to the Tour de France. So that'd be Israel P- Premier Tech, Lotto Destiny get invited to the tour this year. That leaves two other wildcard picks. Total Energy's got it. Uno X got the other one. I mean, I guess what could happen is, you know, what if Kofidis gets, ag- gets not aggregated, Kofidis gets relegated, Archaea gets relegated, and then so you'd have total Kofidis and Archaea, all three second division, te- second division teams looking for two Tour de France spots. Then ASO has leverage. But as long as those teams aren't relegated, relegated they don't actually have a ton of leverage over them i mean probably maybe a combination of is it worth it to alienate aso who could be a major major friend to us if we do get relegated and we don't have to cover like a 10 million dollar payment basically one year after signing this and it's not even clear how the money is going to be generated to make sure we don't have to make that payment they probably just thought a lot of the upside wasn't there but there is a lot of downside one of which being alienating ASO. Yeah, I think the only story bigger than this in the last week is Adam Hansen from the CPA coming out and going hard against hookless rims. I don't understand hookless rims. What's the benefit? I I I have no I well, I mean, I think the benefit is that they're simpler to manufacture and cheaper to make, but you can still charge a massive premium for them. That's kind of, that's the CPA position. It's just wild to me to see professional riders coming out and being in strong opposition to the equipment that they have to ride from their sponsors. I mean, I mean, Chris Froome talking trash about Shimano disc brakes is one thing. This is another order of magnitude. I mean, they don't have hooks on them. 
it seems I'm I'm assuming they're saying they're too dangerous. Is that what the writers are saying? Probably. You also have to think though, there was a time when disc brakes were being trialed and you know, you would have thought that like torture implements were being put on bikes. Do you remember there's like there were gonna be decapitations? Yeah, I do remember this. They're like Right? <laughs> and someone got cut by one, I think. Man, yeah. I've, I've blocked this all out now that you mention it. Yeah, I recall this. But I'm I'm wondering if those things are actually happening and they just don't talk about it because the sponsors don't want them talking about it. Like, I don't know. It would be interesting to talk to a pro who's been in a bike pile under rim brake bikes and under disc brake bikes. I always worried about the... The chain ring, but I guess the disc brake, you're just adding more. Oh thing. man, chain rings, chain rings, the worst. And now that there's 62 teeth, man, they're going to be chopping yeah. people's heads off. But with the hookless rims that you do hear about them not holding, you know, on amateur bikes, like it just, it just seems weird to me. It's like, what, who, who thought that the hooks were not good to have? They do a good job of keeping your tire on the rim, which is pretty important. I don't like what world are we living in where we've been convinced the riding around with pool noodles inside of our tires is better than a tube. <laughs> it's got to be so much heavier. Or what happened? <laughs> yeah. Or like tu- tubular. You know what was hookless? Tubular. And you know how you kept it on? You glued it on. Like, I just don't understand why they're bending over backwards. I, I guess the market pressure, like no one's going to buy a tubular rim, so they don't want to make it. And then people don't want to ride it. But Unless, unless I'm missing something, and maybe there is a massive rolling advantage of having a, I guess, a clincher hookless versus a tubular. Yeah, having these clinchers with big, heavy foam inside so that if you flat, you're fine seems really strange to me. Yeah, you're fine and you're ready for a backyard pool party. <laughs> it looks so heavy. I don't understand it. And you know what's weird about the one cycling thing? Something I want to bring up to you. Do you know what team is not involved? UA, yeah. UAE Team Emirates. EF, EF is definitely involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just kind of like, what, do you think they're not? I, I don't know what's going on there. I mean, one theory would be, and I don't, I don't personally know the relationship between you know, the people who would sponsor the UAE team, which would be someone in the government of the royal family there. And P- I've got a theory. And Piff, like I don't know if they're not yeah. allowed to work together or, or what exactly is going on there, or they're just, just like why would we do this? We're pretty happy with our situation. We get every good young rider in the sport, and we have Tadej Pogacar, so we're not going to worry about anything else. Yeah, it is remarkable to me that the, the only team that's on the record, and quoted by name, is UAE. Of all the teams in the World Tour, they're the only team that commented on this story. I, I do see CEO. Well, yeah, no, yeah, you're right. They're the only, and it's a pretty, pretty nothing burger comment. Yeah, they're monitoring the situation. <laughs> we have a total, we have a total neutral, neutral position. position. So wait and see. But I mean, you have to think if you had eight teams, obviously you're you're gonna want Pog in there. So like that brings you to nine, and then you just need a French team, and that's it. I mean, the thing, the UAE strong position is at this point. They're going to have every good young rider in the sport. So it's like, yeah, if you want Juan Ayuso at your race and you don't have UAE, that could be a problem. I mean, Tade maybe. I mean, Tade is obviously very important, but you're not going to get him a lot of these small races anyway. So it's like, oh, boo-hoo, he's not at the Tour of Switzerland. And then another thing that's been going on while, while this has been going on is the independent race is essentially dying. 
Like there used to be, you know, Tour de Switzerland was an independent race. Right. I believe, I think it's Flanders Classics took a 30% stake in that last year. So that's clearly them trying to get something to, it, and they are the one, they're the one organizer that is pro one cycling and would probably be involved. So if one cycling has the tour of Switzerland, they can then run that in direct opposition of ASO's Dauphiné, and maybe that right. makes a dent. And then um, I think Amstel Gold was another one that was bought by Flanders Classic. That was an independent race. It kind of seems like you're gonna in twelve months you're got you're gonna be owned by ASO, RCS, or Flanders Classics, and there's no more independent races. And I assume this is happening because. ASO sees Flanders Classics buying all these races and thinks we have to strengthen our position and keeps one-upping them. Meanwhile, RCS probably has no idea what's going on. In addition to that, Joe Lindsay had some great reporting on this in a roundabout way is totally connected to this, but Flanders Classics have a relationship with Lifetime Grand Prix now. And it seems it just seems like there's an interesting partnership going on there, sharing knowledge, both about gr how to bring more gravel into Europe at the amateur level. And then I think they're going to professionalize it and probably have some pretty interesting events. And then the Lifetime Grand Prix is learning more about the European market. And also, Kimo Seymour, the CEO, was talking about how they want to pro further professionalize gravel racing in the United States and bring it up to the level of the classics, which is quite interesting to me yeah i did see that flanders launched it was it was some sort of lifetime gravel event in europe um i'm right. I'm, not, I'm prepared I, it was it was some sort of gravel event owned by some sort in partnership with some sort of major player and did it i mean they are the most forward thinking of the three organizers they just don't have the heft you know in inside of benelux that region they are big, big players like Tour of Flanders is massively popular in Belgium. They just don't have the international heft at the moment of RCS or ASO. That is an interesting avenue for them to be developing gravel. I guess it, it just all makes me come back to this weekend. I'm like, well, what is Strata? Is that a gravel race? Is that not a gravel race? Will that ever be seen as a gravel race or does it have the taint of road race on it and therefore can never be seen as a gravel event? Because you could start imagine. You can imagine these professional gravel races launching in Europe and looking a lot like what we're going to see tomorrow at Strata. Which is always a super fun race to watch. Yeah. I guess, I guess when I think about gravel worlds, that was like one level above, at least in the technical, it's like Strata plus a little bit more technicality. And maybe that's the future of gravel. It's races like that, but with, you know, you're cutting through vineyards and you have to descend like a, negative 20% vineyard track to get down to the short pape section. And it's a little bit more technical that I, I would had, bet that is the future of gravel in Europe. It would look a lot like gravel world champs last year. Yeah. And world champs last year also had the highest percentage of actual pedestrian bike paths I've ever seen used in a professional event. Yeah. And sometimes you're not I'm still a little fuzzy on this. Sometimes I'm confused if I'm on a bike path or if I'm on a small road. They they start to blend together at a certain point. Those were definitely more of the sidewalk variety, I would say. Maybe that's the difference between road and gravel. And road, you're auto-DQ'd if you ride on a pedestrian bike path. 
and they can run them at the same time. That's the synergy. During Tour of Flanders, they'll have a gravel race running on the bike path next to it, and you can keep them clear of each other. You know, it's perhaps too early to tell. My feeling is that we are seeing less wrecks without canted brifters. And I'll, I'm wondering if anybody's doing a quantitative analysis on this beyond my wild speculation. Well, we, should, we should probably hold our tongue until we see Strata. <laughs> We're going to see like just massive pileups for the next five weeks. But I definitely think the negative of canted brifters and the reason you didn't see Yumbo do it is because they made a calculation of any sort of aerodynamic gain you get from that you're just giving up because there's nothing slower than crashing and you're increasing your chance of crashing because you can't control right. the bike you're on. And so I do think it it lowered the ability of people to actually turn their bicycle, which is important when you're in a fast moving group. Yeah, it is pretty important. I think a final thought I wanted to share, I was watching coverage of a SoCal crit on YouTube that happened last weekend and it was a Masters one, two, three. 35 plus crit. Why are you talking about this, Andrew? Spencer, there was a guy, this was 35, 35 was plus is too young. Hey, <laughs> too young for a master's race. Yeah. Why do they do that? I don't know. It's from the Ride Bold YouTube channel. It's a great channel. Check it out. Lots of cool SoCal POV footage from races and group rides like the Matros ride. There's a guy in this race, Spencer, who he has a rear disc wheel. And I, I've never seen... Can you do that? Can you run a? Uh, I didn't. Can you run a rear disc wheel in a crit? That seemed like an auto DQ to me. I always assumed it wasn't allowed, but maybe there was just no one bold enough to try it. We're all. I don't know. Maybe we're playing yeah, maybe checkers this was, while this uh, guy's playing chess. Yeah, this was the major motion king and queen of crit. I'm wondering maybe this was run under CBR rules and like i don't know maybe you can run a front and back disc i have no idea i'd never seen that in a crip before it was wild the guy also had probably like a negative 35 degree stem on his bike that was running the disc wheel it was yeah it was like watching chris boardman in a crit in a master's <laughs> crit i mean i if you a charitable take on this would be he's so smart because he he read the guidelines and realized it wasn't outlawed and that you got to attack from the gun if you're going to do that. <laughs> you can't be sitting in the group with a full disc rear wheel. I mean, you got to be off. You got to be like, I'm going to go off the front immediately. So I'm getting as arrow as possible. They're also very heavy. So you'd have a really high moment of inertia. You wouldn't want to have to reaccelerate that wheel out of every, every corner. corner. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. We need to, we need to get a reporter on the ground. We need to know more about this. We yeah. have to fly out there, do some of these races. It's a great idea. They'd love to have you. All right. Well, I've, I've got to run, but we got a big re big weekend of racing coming up. I'm excited to talk about it next week. I'm excited to talk about it a week after it's happened next week when I can barely remember what happened. But we are getting into the meat of the season. I hope we start to see Remco racing really, really good stage racers on a regular basis. This will hopefully be an amuse-bouge to the Tour de France. So quite excited. And thanks for joining, Andrew. Yeah, we're getting into the meat of the season, so it's time to get out the sauces. <laughs> the Powell's sauces. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll talk to you later. Take care. <laughs>